The chilly midwinter morning of January 11, 1992, in southern Indiana, was shaping up to be ideal for quail hunting. At around 10.45 a.m. on the outskirts of Jefferson Proving Ground, just outside the town of Madison, two brothers caught sight of something off the side of Lemon Road as they drove along. The men jumped out of their pickup and walked through an isolated open field toward what looked like a department store mannequin laying on the ground. It was a strange location to stumble upon something so out of place. But as the men moved closer, their confusion turned to horror when they realized that they'd in fact discovered the blackened remains of a corpse. The men called 911. When law enforcement arrived, the remains were confirmed to be the charred body of a woman. She'd been wrapped in a blanket and laid on her back before being set alight. Whoever she was, she'd sustained severe burns to the upper part of her body and her facial features had been obliterated. Her arms were stiffened and bent at the elbows, sticking up into the air, her fists clenched. The woman's blood-stained legs had been bent at the knees and spread apart, as if they were posed. Blood pooled underneath the victim's head, and limestone residue was detected on the soles of her feet from the nearby road. Not far from the body, forensics officers located a melted empty two-liter soda bottle, which smelled of accelerant. Unfortunately, no fingerprints could be recovered from the bottle due to the heat damage, so footprints and tire tracks were the only other available clues. Identifying the vehicle that had left the tire tracks would be time-consuming, but it was the only lead available in attempting to track down the person responsible or anyone who had been in the area around the time of the murder. Jefferson County Sheriff's Office began poring over the missing persons reports for young women in the area. But none matched the description of the victim. Detectives found it curious that the body had been dumped out in the open. Lemon Road wasn't far from a wooded area, where the body would have remained concealed for much longer amongst the trees. With not much more to go on, the body was removed from the scene for further examination, and officers continued their search of the surrounding area for more clues. Several hours later, in neighboring Clark County, Steve Scherer and his ex-wife Jackie were frantic. Their 12-year-old daughter, Shanda, had been missing since earlier that morning, and there was no sign of her anywhere. Shanda had been staying at Steve's house in Jeffersonville, as she did every weekend following her parents' divorce. But Steve hadn't seen her since around 11.30 p.m. the night before, when he left her watching TV as he went to bed. Shanda's distressed parents filed a missing person report, along with Steve's wife, Sharon, they busied themselves by making repeated phone calls to anyone they could think of who may have seen their daughter, but it was an agonizing wait for information nonetheless. Hours later, police called at Steve's home to request Shanda's dental records, but there was still no news. Around 9.30 p.m., investigators were still in the process of trying to identify the badly burned body when a teenage girl arrived at the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office with her parents. 15-year-old Madison High School student Tony Lawrence was hysterical, blubbering to officers that the night before, she'd been hanging out with three girls she named as her friend Hope and two other girls named Lori and Melinda. Between sobs, Tony told officers that the girls said they were going to drive to the Witch's Castle, a local landmark by the Ohio River, just north of the Kentucky border, where they planned to kill a young girl. Tony continued that the group then picked up a girl named Shanda from a house in Clark County. Tony had never even met the girl and didn't know anything more about her. Tony went on to say that the girl in question had been dating Melinda's girlfriend. None of the story was making much sense, but officers contacted the Clark County Sheriff's Department to run the name by any missing persons reports. When investigators compared the details and pieced together all the information... Things were looking grim for Shanda Scherer's anxious family back in Jeffersonville. Now, let's get on with it. Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat. Next to the fire. Welcome to Obscura, where we shine a light on the dark.
Part 1. Chalk and Cheese Candace Scherer was born in the small East Kentucky town of Pineville on June 6, 1979. She was exceptionally close to her mother, Jackie, who described her daughter as her little buddy. Shanda had an older half-sister, Paige, from Jackie's first marriage that had ended in divorce before Shanda was born. When Shanda was around five years old, Steve and Jackie's marriage broke down, and Steve went on to remarry. Mother and daughter moved a three-hour drive away to Kentucky's largest city of Louisville, in the north of the state. Shanda attended St. Paul's Catholic School, where she enthusiastically participated in cheerleading, softball, gymnastics, and basketball. She was a dedicated student who had a flair for writing poetry and achieved good grades. A fun-loving and confident extrovert who loved hanging out with her friends and chatting on the phone. Shanda was also compassionate and sensitive to those around her. Jackie later described her daughter to the News and Tribune newspaper as quiet, a little girl who came home from school each day and cuddled on your lap. She had a big heart, loved people, and was a wonderful child. Unlike many couples who split, Steve and Jackie maintained a good relationship. Key to the friendliness between them was the immense love they shared for their daughter. Shanda was close to both her parents, living with Jackie during the week, but spending weekends with Steve and his second wife, Sharon. Jackie remarried when Shanda was around seven years old. But sadly, in June 1991, this marriage too broke down. Following the divorce, Jackie and Shanda moved to the southern Indiana city of New Albany, just north of the Ohio River. Shanda was thrilled to be living closer to her father and pleaded with Jackie to be allowed to attend a public school. Things were financially tight, but Jackie agreed, and Shanda was enrolled in 7th grade at Hazelwood Middle School. She was understandably nervous about starting on a new and much larger school environment than she was used to. Things seemed to start smoothly enough for Shanda, but on her third day at her new school, Jackie received a phone call from the school principal, informing her that Shanda had been in a fight with another girl. It was an extremely disappointing start to the school year for the new student, who wasn't the type to court trouble. Both Shanda and an 8th grade girl who'd instigated the confrontation, named Amanda Heverin, received a week's school detention with an unexpected outcome. Shanda and Amanda became fast friends as they passed notes during detention. Their friendship grew outside the classroom, but Jackie was shocked that her daughter would want to be friends with someone who had assaulted her. Jackie had serious reservations about Amanda, who she felt seemed to attract trouble. But Shanda insisted that despite of their getting off on the wrong foot, Amanda wasn't a bad person. Understanding that Shanda was still trying to make friends in a new school environment and find her feet, Jackie relented and reluctantly allowed Shanda to continue to hang out with Amanda. As the friendship developed, Shanda learned that Amanda was gay and dating a 15-year-old girl who also attended Hazelwood. Born in New Albany in late October 1975, Melinda Loveless was the youngest of three daughters to her parents, Larry and Marjorie. Life was incredibly unhappy and dysfunctional in the Loveless household. Even before Melinda was born, her parents' marriage was abusive. This dynamic only intensified as the family grew. Melinda's father, Larry, was a former Vietnam veteran who could never manage to hold down a job for long. His belligerence, self-entitlement, and domineering personality meant his wife and daughters lived in constant fear of his temper. Larry was also intensely jealous and violated all manner of personal boundaries with the female members of his family. This included forcing Marjorie to regularly participate in swinging parties at their home. Larry didn't care whether his young daughters witnessed their parents having sex with other adults. Larry regularly wore his wife and daughter's underwear and makeup and was known to masturbate while wearing women's underwear, which he'd later hide around the house. He bathed infrequently and was unfaithful. When Marjorie confronted her husband about his infidelity, he responded with violence. The family had no reason to struggle financially, as both Larry and Marjorie were generally always working. But Larry's obsession with firearms 
and his self-absorbed attitude meant that he frittered away his paychecks on himself. Instead of paying the bills and providing for his family, this lack of financial responsibility saw Larry filing for bankruptcy in 1980. Life for his wife and daughters, meanwhile, was utterly miserable. Marjorie attempted to take her life at least twice during the marriage, once after Larry arranged for her to be gang-raped. Not long after this incident, Larry himself raped Marjorie, the incident traumatizing their three young daughters, who overheard the violent assault. Larry continued to beat his wife, resulting in her hospitalization in 1986. A conviction for battery didn't deter Larry from continuing to abuse his daughters verbally and emotionally, whom he also sexualized and groomed from a young age. Larry was said to have sexually abused both of Melinda's older sisters, Marjorie's teenage sister, and some of Melinda's young cousins. One of his favorite things was to humiliate his daughters by sniffing pairs of their underwear in front of the family and visitors, and wondering aloud who the underwear belonged to. But despite the volatile home environment and Larry's abhorrent behavior, Melinda loved her father desperately. From a young age, she'd slept in the same bed as Larry, unsupervised. This came to an end in 1990 when Melinda was 14 years old, and Marjorie finally filed for divorce in order to protect her daughters and escape the toxic marriage. Larry relocated to Florida. Melinda was devastated and resented her mother for destroying her relationship with her father. Larry soon remarried and eventually stopped contacting Melinda, who felt totally abandoned. It wasn't long before Melinda was introduced to Amanda Heverin, and the two girls quickly became inseparable. Amanda looked and behaved like a tomboy and was different to Melinda's other friends. Amanda was kind and listened without judgment when Melinda confided in her about the violence and abuse in the turbulent Loveless household. The friendship quickly developed into something more. By this stage, Melinda had already been sexually active with teenage boys, but the casual experiences had left her feeling used and empty. Melinda and Amanda's relationship wasn't necessarily a secret, but in conservative small-town Indiana, things weren't easy for the couple at school. Same-sex relationships weren't celebrated, let alone accepted by many in places like Madison. When Marjorie Loveless remarried in late 1990, Melinda started to act out, becoming confrontational at school as her hatred for her mother intensified. By February 1991, 15-year-old Melinda was experiencing depression, so at her mother's insistence, she commenced counseling, which lasted for several months. That March, Melinda made the weighty decision to come out to her mother as gay. Marjorie was outraged, and the simmering tension at home spilled over into Melinda and Amanda's relationship, which by the summer of 1991 was falling apart. Melinda started hanging out with a wayward crowd in Louisville and drinking alcohol. Melinda clearly called the shots in her relationship with Amanda, but it seemed this was starting to wear on the younger girl, who was growing more intolerant of Melinda's domineering personality. Not long after Shanda Scherer started attending Hazelwood and hanging out with Amanda, Melinda made it known around school that she detested the newcomer. She frequently made nasty remarks mocking Shanda's hair and clothes to anyone who would listen. Meanwhile, Amanda's attention became more and more focused on Shanda, the pair continued to exchange letters as the friendship deepened. In September 1991, Amanda wrote, I have a question to ask you. I know this might sound dumb. Do you kind of, in a way, like girls? If so, I think it's so cool. Because it's so different. Is that why you're so nice to me? Do you think I'm cute or something? By this time, Melinda was attempting to ingratiate herself with Shanda but her motivations were more self-serving. Consumed with jealousy, Melinda was extremely possessive of Amanda, and she wanted to ensure nothing was developing between her girlfriend and Shanda. Melinda wrote to Shanda under the guise of being friendly, but making it clear that she didn't approve of the two girls spending time together in Melinda's absence. Amanda, in turn, reassured Shanda, writing, Please don't let Melinda bother you. Please don't stop liking me because of her. The volatile nature of the dynamic between the three girls was intense and unpredictable. Melinda was obsessed with monitoring Shanda's every move, but the close friendship between the two younger girls deepened, and sooner or later, something had to give. With all her focus on Amanda, 
Shanda's usually excellent grades started to slip dramatically. The correspondence between Shanda and Amanda had become gushing and romantic. The pair were clearly infatuated with each other. But this came to an abrupt end when Shanda's mother, Jackie, discovered that Amanda had been teaching Shanda how to forge her mother's signature. Jackie put her foot down and forbade Shanda from seeing Amanda. Like many teens who were forbidden from seeing their closest friends, Shanda continued to hang out with Amanda through the fall of 1991, sneaking around to avoid Jackie discovering her disobedience. Melinda knew the girls were still in contact and was livid with both of them. She made it known to her older friends she wasn't going to let Shanda get away with swooping in and, quote, stealing Amanda. One of Melinda's friends convinced her that Amanda needed to learn her place and be punished for her transgression. This spurred Melinda on to orchestrate a plan to lure Amanda out of her house late one night so Melinda could beat her up. But the plan fell through when Melinda and her friends turned up at Amanda's house so late in the evening that their unwitting target was unable to be roused from her sleep. Melinda was fuming. It wasn't long before Jackie found out that Shanda had disobeyed her instruction not to be in contact with Amanda. An unstamped letter that Shanda had sent to Amanda was returned to Jackie's home. Jackie was disturbed to read the contents of the letter, in which Shanda professed, I miss you and I will always love you no matter what happens. I miss the touch of your soft body. Jackie couldn't have cared less that Amanda was gay or that her daughter may have been. Her concern was the potentially inappropriate and intense nature of the relationship given Shanda was only 12 and far too young to be entering into a sexual relationship with anyone. After Jackie shared her concerns with Shanda's father and stepmother, it was decided that it would be best for their daughter to move schools. Away from Amanda's influence, Shanda was enrolled in Our Lady of Perpetual Help Catholic School. She quickly made new friends and within a matter of weeks, appeared to be getting back on track academically. She even renewed her interest in cheerleading, and Jackie was relieved that things seemed to be getting back to normal. But Amanda and Shanda continued to write each other in secret, and despite Melinda being elated that Shanda had moved schools, her hatred for the young girl continued to fester. At the next Hazelwood school dance late in September, Amanda and Shanda went as each other's date. The pair were having a great time together, but the night turned sour when Melinda arrived as the dance was wrapping up. She approached the girls, slapping Amanda and getting in Shanda's face threatening her to stay away from Amanda. Shanda wasn't worried by Melinda's intimidation and harassment, so Melinda issued Amanda an ultimatum. It worked. By December, things seemed to be cooling between the two younger girls. Amanda's attempts to reach out to Shanda no longer elicited a response. She assumed Shanda was staying silent because she was intimidated by Melinda. Despite the fact that Melinda had begun dating another girl closer to her own age who ran with a different crowd, she finally felt she could have Amanda all to herself. This proved problematic, though. The book, Little Lost Angel by Michael Quinlan, details how Amanda hadn't yet come out to her family. When her father discovered letters from Melinda to his daughter containing overtly sexual overtones and threats to Shanda, he decided it was no longer in Amanda's best interest for her to associate with Melinda. Amanda's father was so troubled by the letters that he passed them on to the local chief juvenile probation officer. If Melinda didn't keep her distance, Amanda's father would see to it that the older girl was charged with harassment. But Melinda wasn't worried. By this stage, she'd met a new friend. They were spending more and more time together. Listener, as a leader in the CBD industry, CBDMD is committed to providing high-quality, THC-free CBD oil products. Whether you're gunning for a raise or an Olympic gold medal, you need to stay at the top of your game. And with so many world-class professional athletes turning to CBDMD, you can be sure you're getting a safe, clean product. From tinctures to topicals to bath bombs and even pet products, they've got something for everyone. I personally am blown away by the CBD freeze on offer. I've been using it on my back and shoulders, and the soreness just seems to melt away in minutes. And hey, to make it even easier to discover the potential of CBD for yourself, CBDMD is offering our listeners 25% off your purchase. 
when you use the promo code Obscura at checkout. Once again, that's CBDMD.com, promo code Obscura, for 25% off your order of premium CBD oil products from CBDMD. Part 2. Lie down with the devil. Wake up in hell. Mary Tackett was the oldest of two children born to her parents, George and Peggy, in October 1974 in Madison, southern Indiana. She was known to her friends and family as Lori, an abbreviated version of her middle name, Laureen. Her mother, Peggy, was a devout member of the Pentecostal Christian Church, while her father, George, worked at a factory. Peggy's fundamentalist religious views were a significant source of conflict in the household, especially with George, who didn't subscribe to her fanaticism. Lori was a withdrawn and quiet child who preferred her own company. The long, unfashionable dresses Peggy forced Lori to wear only made her stand out and isolated her from her peers. Lori later recalled that she had no happy memories of her childhood, claiming that on two occasions she was molested, once at age 5, then again at age 12. According to the Tribune, from the time Lori was 9 years old till she reached early adolescence, Peggy, who was a strict and highly conservative disciplinarian, beat and choked her daughter on a regular basis when she refused to attend church. But when Lori was around 14 years old, she started to rebel drinking alcohol and changing into more fashionable clothes at school. When Peggy found out, she was so furious she beat Lori, trying to strangle her and leaving her with several injuries, resulting in social services becoming involved with the family. Lori remained in the home, but by this time, 15-year-old Lori had cut off her long hair and was dressing like her peers, hanging out with an alternative crowd. She wore heavy, dark makeup and developed a fascination with the occult including witchcraft, vampirism, runes, and Ouija boards. Lori hated her mother with a passion, going to any lanes to be and do the opposite of what Peggy expected. Peggy, of course, was enraged at Lori's defiance, even attempting to have her daughter exercised by the church. Lori remained largely alone or at school, except for one friend, Hope Rippy, whom she met in elementary school, and a friend of Hope's named Tony Lawrence. Hope was the youngest of four children, born in Madison to her parents Carl and Gloria in June 1976. In February 1984, the Rippies divorced, and Gloria took the kids back to her home state of Michigan, where they remained for the next three years. Despite the upheaval, following the breakdown of her parents' marriage, Hope remained close with her family, becoming known as someone who stepped in to defuse conflict. She enjoyed playing basketball, was a talented musician who played the piano and flute. When Hope was around 11 years old, her mother packed the kids up and returned to Madison, where she reunited with her ex-husband. Hope was excited to reconnect with her childhood friends, Lori and Tony. The Rippies had concerns that Lori was a bad influence, but they knew she had an unhappy home life, so they permitted the friendship with Hope to continue. Hope was generally a responsible and caring friend, who could hopefully convince Lori not to drop out of Madison High School. But things took a turn for the worse when Hope and Tony joined Lori in experimenting with self-harming. Tony Lawrence was born in Madison in February 1976 to her parents Clifton and Glenda. Like Hope, she was the youngest of the family and grew up in a comfortable, middle-class surrounding. She was indulged by her parents and rarely disciplined in any meaningful way. Tony and Hope had been friends for years, having first met in kindergarten. Now part of the preppy crowd at Madison High, Tony was used to getting her own way and doing whatever she wanted. She was an academically average but generally well-behaved student who enjoyed reading and writing. Even though she had a reserved disposition and quiet demeanor, she had plans for the future, hoping to one day make it to college. But underneath her withdrawn exterior, Tony struggled with the fallout of trauma. She later claimed that when she was nine years old, she was sexually abused by a male relative. Five years later, at age 14, Tony was then raped by a teenage boy. Her parents eventually found out, but no charges were laid thanks to police claiming the only action they could take was to make a restraining order against the boy in question. Tony was devastated, and counseling didn't help. 
As a result of the bullying she received from her peers about the incident, she started acting out, drinking alcohol, smoking marijuana, and having unprotected casual sex. By the time she was in 8th grade, Tony had begun to self-harm in an attempt to escape the pain and inner turmoil. Early in 1991, 16-year-old Lori Tackett started dating a girl, having come to the realization that she identified as bisexual. During the relationship, Lori started self-harming, and by March, her parents sought psychiatric treatment, resulting in Lori being prescribed antidepressant medication. In a more serious self-harming incident, less than a week later, Lori was admitted to hospital. She denied feeling suicidal, but was open about feeling depressed. During her hospitalization, was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. Following her two-week admission, Lori was discharged in April. She had trouble getting back on track academically and eventually dropped out of high school on September 1991, moving to New York to live with a cousin. However, it wasn't the fresh start Lori had hoped for, and only a few weeks later she returned to Indiana, finding a job at a grocery store in New Albany. By this stage, she was consuming large amounts of alcohol, drinking a bottle of whiskey up to four times a week. Also problematic was Lori's developing fascination with fire and her talk about committing violent acts against others. Friends and acquaintances of Lori later reported that she said she wanted to run a knife through someone's heart to see what it felt like and even wanted to burn somebody. In October 1991, 17-year-old Lori traveled to Louisville to stay with friends. It was here she met 16-year-old Melinda Loveless. By late November, the pair continued to hang out also spending their time in New Albany. The girls didn't click instantly, but as they got to know each other better, they let their guard down. That same month, Lori reluctantly moved back to Madison temporarily, as she was no longer in school and would have to pay her own way in the world. She managed to persuade her father to buy her a second-hand car in order to allow her to drive to work. Once Lori had her Chevy Celebrity... The freedom of her own wheels to go anywhere whenever she wanted was worth the unpleasantness of being back home. But her friends noticed a disturbing change. Lori became preoccupied with the idea of drinking both her own blood and that of other people. Many in her social circle, except for Melinda and Hope, gradually stopped wanting to spend time with Lori, who they found becoming stranger by the day. Her obsession with channeling and the occult was becoming a bit too bizarre, even by their standards. Part 3. The Ninth Circle By early January 1991, Melinda was still seething with vindictiveness about Shanda and Amanda. She was intent on making Shanda pay and wouldn't have to wait long for the opportunity. According to the Indianapolis Star, on January 9th, Lori Tackett invited Melinda to a punk rock concert in Louisville the following night. Upon accepting... Melinda told Lori she also wanted to go out that night to beat up Shanda and kill her. Lori had never even met Shanda, but understood that Melinda wanted to teach Shanda a lesson for being involved with Amanda. Lori thought that Melinda was just upset and it was all talk, but she told Melinda she'd bring a couple of friends. Lori called Hope Rippy and Tony Lawrence to invite them along, but didn't mention anything to Tony about Melinda's plans for Shanda. The afternoon of the following day, Lori arrived at Madison High School to pick up Hope and Tony. As they drove away, Lori smirked and asked Hope, Have you told Tony yet? Tony was puzzled until Lori casually told her they were going to kill a young girl that night. Tony was stunned. Surely this girl couldn't be serious. Lori mentioned they'd be swinging by New Albany about an hour's drive away to collect Melinda. On the drive over... Lori took Hope and Tony to a derelict stone structure in an isolated location near the Ohio River, east of Utica. The abandoned and foreboding-looking house was known as the Witch's Castle. Locals preferred to refer to the area as Mistletoe Falls. Nevertheless, the location was a popular drawcard for groups of young people to hang out and consume alcohol, especially on Halloween. Lori showed Hope and Tony around explaining that according to local folklore, the house was said to be the home to a group of witches who had been incinerated years before, when local residents burned the place and the witches inside to the ground. 
Their sightseeing expedition concluded. The trio left and drove to Melinda's house. Tony found the whole thing creepy and was glad they left. That same afternoon, Steve Scherer made the 15-minute drive from his home to pick up his daughter from Jackie's house after school. After Steve and Shanda arrived home in Jeffersonville, Shanda spent the evening helping her father prepare tools and supplies for a home maintenance project the following day. Lori, Hope, and Tony had arrived at Melinda's house, who invited the group inside. Tony hadn't met Melinda before, but Hope had on one occasion. Melinda had an engaging and assertive demeanor and was looking forward to the night ahead. She even let Hope and Tony try on some of her clothes and accessories from her extensive wardrobe to find the perfect outfits for their outing. But the friendly chatter came to a halt when Melinda produced a kitchen knife. She told the girls she planned to use it to scare Shanda, explaining she wanted to beat the young girl up. Melinda continued, explaining that Shanda was dressing like her and had stolen her girlfriend Amanda, resulting in numerous confrontations. Like Lori and Hope, Tony had never even met Shanda, but Melinda was so intimidating that Tony was reluctant to make waves by daring to say she didn't want to participate. The book Cruel Sacrifice by author Aphrodite Jones shows how Melinda made several prank phone calls to Shanda's father's house that evening to ensure Shanda was home before the group set off. With Hope at the wheel, the girls headed towards Jeffersonville. When they arrived at Steve's house just after dark, they parked the car several houses away. Melinda instructed Hope and Tony to knock on Shanda's door, introduce themselves as friends of Amanda's, and invite Shanda to come with them to see her. When Shanda opened the door, she didn't recognize the strange girls on the front step, who told her Amanda was waiting for her at the witch's castle. In hushed tones, Shanda told Hope and Tony that she couldn't go while her parents were awake in any way. She wasn't supposed to see Amanda. Instead, she asked the girls to return a few hours later, around midnight, and bring Amanda with them. After Hope and Tony had left, Steve asked his daughter what the girls wanted. Shanda responded, they'd asked her to go with them to the mall, but she decided against it. Steve felt it was unusual for girls who didn't know Shanda to turn up and ask her to go to the mall. He hoped no one was coming around to the house who could get Shanda into trouble. Back in the car, Melinda was extremely irritated that Hope and Tony returned without Shanda, but was somewhat placated when they told her that Shanda asked them to return later. The group continued on across the river to Louisville, to a skate park where the punk rock concert was about to start. Back in Jeffersonville, Shanda attended a party that evening with a neighborhood friend. When she arrived home at 11 p.m., half an hour past curfew, Steve was unimpressed, so it was no surprise when he turned down his daughter's request for her friend to stay the night. Steve told Shanda she could stay up and watch TV for half an hour, but then had to go to bed. He said goodnight to his daughter one last time and turned in. Over at the punk rock concert in Louisville, the music was loud. Hope and Tony decided it wasn't really their scene, so they headed back outside to a parking lot where they struck up a conversation with a couple of teenage boys. The foursome made themselves comfortable in Lori's car for the next couple of hours, talking and making out while waiting. When Lori and Melinda returned to the car around 11.30 p.m., the girls left the skate park and went to get something to eat before driving back to Jeffersonville. On the way, Melinda was bursting with excitement, saying she couldn't wait to kill Shanda. By the time the girls arrived at the house at 12.30 a.m., Tony was so scared, she refused to go to the door. So the task fell to Lori and Hope. Melinda hid under a blanket in the backseat of the car, armed with the knife. When the girls arrived back at the car, Shanda was perplexed. She climbed into the front seat between Hope and Tony, expecting Amanda, who wasn't there. From the back seat, Lori reassured Shanda that she'd get to see Amanda at the witch's castle. As the group drove away, Hope quizzed Shanda about her relationship with Amanda when Melinda suddenly jumped up from the back seat. She yanked Shanda's head back by her hair, pressed the knife to her neck, and instructed her to shut up or she'd slit her throat. Shanda started crying, pleading with Melinda not to hurt her. Upon arriving at the witch's castle on the edge of the river around 15 minutes later, Melinda and Lori pulled Shanda inside by her arms. Lori had brought some rope which she used to tie Shanda's wrists while Melinda bound the terrified girl's ankles. 
Shana begged the group to let her go. Tony later told the police she watched the disturbing events unfold, but was unable to intervene because she was literally scared stiff. Melinda insulted Shanda about her hairstyle and clothes, threatening to cut off her hair. Hope intimidated her with a knife, forcing Shanda to remove her rings and Mickey Mouse watch. Lori menacingly told Shanda that bones were buried at the witch's castle, threatening her that she could be joining them. The torment continued, with Lori retrieving a t-shirt from the car. In front of a petrified Shanda, Lori poured alcohol on the t-shirt and set it alight, taunting, that's what you're going to look like. Suddenly, headlights from numerous passing cars spooked the girls. Not wanting to attract attention with the flames from the burning t-shirt, Lori instructed the group they needed to leave, already planning where to go next. Piling back into the car, Tony sat up front with Hope, who was driving. Melinda and Lori sat on either side of Shanda in the back seat to ensure she wouldn't try anything funny. The group drove for a while, but needed to stop for gas. Melinda and Lori stayed inside the car with Shanda, covering her with a blanket while Hope and Tony went inside to pay. Not long after pulling away from the station, the girls realized they'd become lost. In the days before GPS devices and Google Maps, the group had little choice but to stop at another gas station to get directions back to Madison. Hope managed to get directions back to Jeffersonville, where the group had picked up Shanda from her father's house. During the next hour or so, Shanda tearfully pleaded with her captors to take her home. By this time, the group had returned to Madison. Lori took over navigating, instructing Hope to head towards a wooded area just past Lori's house in rural northern Jefferson County. When they arrived at the isolated spot, the girls drove along a dirt road and pulled into a clearing. The area served as a burn pile where the Tackets and their neighbors would dispose of unwanted trash. The girls got out of the car. Tony whispered words of comfort to frighten Shanda, apologizing for what had happened. But Melinda was having none of it and yelled at both girls. Filled with a sense of foreboding, Tony got back in the car and Hope joined her. They turned the radio up as loud as they could to drown out the sound of Shanda's yelps and cries. As Melinda and Lori assaulted her, Melinda ordered Shanda to strip down to her underwear, seizing her sweatshirt, bra, and jeans. She threw the clothing in the car, where Hope proceeded to remove her own bra and put Shanda's on. Outside the car, Lori restrained Shanda while Melinda punched her. Melinda then grabbed Shanda by the head, smashing her face into Melinda's knee. This tore and lacerated Shanda's mouth. The injuries made worse by the fact that she'd had braces put on only a month before. Lori again restrained Shanda while Melinda tried to slit her throat with the knife, but it wasn't sharp enough. Hope got out of the car to help subdue the bleeding and struggling girl. Lori and Melinda restrained Shanda on the ground, with Lori attempting to strangle her. Lori and Melinda then placed some more rope around Shanda's neck, each pulling on an end until Shanda fell unconscious. They clumsily hauled Shanda into the trunk of the car, Hope and Tony refusing to help them. When Lori and Melinda got back into the car, Melinda announced that Shanda was dead. The car took off with Hope still at the wheel, speeding towards Lori's house. It was around 2 a.m. when the group arrived at the Tacky home. The girls went inside and up to Lori's bedroom. Lori washed up after noticing some blood splatter on her clothing. But the girls hadn't been in the house long, when they heard the sound of Lori's dog barking outside. This was followed by the faint sound of Shanda screaming from the trunk of Lori's car. The 12-year-old had regained consciousness and was fighting desperately for her life. Incensed, Lori fetched a paring knife and headed out to the car. She stabbed Shanda several times, resulting in more blood stains on her clothes when she returned to the house. Shanda's screaming had stopped. Satisfied that was the last they'd hear from Shanda, the girls hung out in Lori's bedroom. Around 2.30 a.m., Lori felt restless and told the girls she wanted to go for a drive through the country. Tony and Hope chose to stay behind, so Lori and Melinda piled into the car. Driving back towards the burn pile, they needed to decide what to do with Shanda's body and headed towards Canaan, a town about a 20-minute drive north of Madison. Lori and Melinda hadn't been driving long throughout the darkened countryside, when they again heard Shanda's muffled screams. Lori pulled over and went to the back of the car where she proceeded to beat Shanda into silence, not with her fists, but a tire iron, 
Jumping back into the car, a hyped-up Lori showed Melinda the bloodied weapon she just used, thrusted it into her face, saying, Smell it. The girls continued to drive around, mulling over how they would dispose of Shanda's body. When they pulled over again and opened the trunk to check on their victim, they were shocked to see Shanda sit up. It was a ghastly sight, to say the least. A shivering Shanda was covered in blood, her hair sticky and matted, and her eyes rolling back in her head. Linda and Lori slammed the trunk shut and continued driving around for the next five hours. In the trunk, Shanda laps in and out of consciousness in the dark, kicking as hard as she could to try to free herself. According to the Indianapolis Star, Lori and Melinda pulled over again to see if Shanda would try to escape when they opened the trunk. Melinda had suggested that if Shanda jumped out, they could run her over. But when the trunk was popped open, Shanda was still unconscious. Lori and Melinda discussed throwing her body into a creek until Melinda pointed out that Shanda would eventually float to the surface. Meanwhile, Hope and Tony had fallen asleep in Lori's room. Earlier, Lori's father came in, surprised to find the girls and asking where his daughter was. Hope and Tony replied that Lori was with Melinda. There was no mention of Shanda. The girls fell back asleep and awoke just before dawn to find Melinda and Lori had returned with blood on their faces and hands. Hope asked what they'd done with Shanda, and Lori and Melinda laughed while recounting how they bashed their victim repeatedly with the tire iron. The girls talking and giggling soon woke Lori's mother who was angry with her daughter for being out so late and bringing her friends home. Disgruntled Lori told Peggy she'd drive the group home, and the girls left. But as Lori drove towards the main road, she took a detour and headed for the burn pile. After stopping the car, Lori, Melinda, and Hope got out. They went to the rear of the car and opened the trunk to look at Shanda's battered body, but Tony refused to get out. Desperately hoping this was all just a bad dream, she just wanted to go home but was finding it hard to concentrate on anything except the sound of Shanda's tortured screams as the girls continued to assault her. By this stage, Shanda had numerous knife wounds to her legs, which Hope sprayed with window cleaner, jeering, You're not looking so hot now, are you? Melinda jumped back in the driver's seat, revving the engine as hard as she could to drown out the sound of Shanda's screaming. It was now around 7 a.m., Steve Sharon and his wife Sharon had just realized Shanda wasn't in her room. The Courier-Journal newspaper reported that Steve awoke earlier that morning, around 4 a.m. In the darkness, he went into the kitchen where he noticed the back door was slightly ajar. He closed and locked it, sticking his head into his daughter's room on his way back to bed. Shanda wasn't there, but Steve simply thought she was asleep in another bed in the basement. Now discovering his daughter wasn't home at all, an alarmed Steve and Sharon contacted numerous neighbors and friends of Shanda's, worried she may have been locked out after he locked the back door hours earlier. Steve and Sharon searched the neighborhood, but there was no sign of Shanda anywhere. It was extremely out of character for her to have snuck out during the night. As the minutes passed, Steve was running out of ideas as to where his daughter could possibly be. Back at the burn pile near the Tackett house, Melinda, Lori, and Hope had a plan they'd worked out. A plan on how to not only get rid of Shanda, but any evidence connecting them to her. Throwing Shanda back in the trunk and getting back in the car, the girls drove towards a gas station not far from Madison High School. Arriving around 8.40 a.m., Hope filled up the car while Lori and Tony went inside and bought a two-liter bottle of Pepsi. To Tony's horror, Lori poured the Pepsi out and refilled the bottle with gasoline from the pump. The group pulled out of the gas station with Hope driving. The girls soon found themselves about eight miles north of Madison, with Hope suggesting they continue on past Jefferson Proving Ground to Lemon Road off Route 421. Hope was familiar with the isolated area, knew the girls wouldn't be disturbed. When the group arrived at their destination, Tony stayed in the car while Melinda, Lori, and Hope got out to open the trunk. Feeling queasy at how badly Shanda was bleeding, Melinda left the task of lifting Shanda out of the trunk to Lori and Hope. The two girls wrapped Shanda in a red blanket and carried her a short distance away before laying her on the ground. Lori looked at Hope and told her to pour the gasoline on Shanda, feeling she had no choice. Hope did as she was told. Lori pulled a matchbook from her pocket, struck a match and dropped it, 
setting Shanda on fire. The girls quickly made their way back to the car and fled the scene, with Lori behind the wheel. But as they sped away, Linda had a nagging feeling. What if Shanda didn't die? She couldn't risk it. She instructed Lori to turn around and head back to their victim. Linda grabbed the soda bottle, which still contained some gasoline, and emptied the last of it over Shanda's body. Watching as the flames flared, Melinda was ecstatic when she returned to the car, laughing about how Shanda looked in her final moments. As far as Melinda was concerned, she and Amanda were now free to pursue their relationship without any interference from Shanda ever again. Hope thought it was a good idea for the girls to have breakfast before they headed home. The group pulled into a nearby McDonald's, where Tony surreptitiously made a private phone call to a girlfriend, blurting out the gruesome details of what had transpired. She then returned to the group where none were the wiser, and by now were eating and callously making jokes about Shanda's remains. The foursome agreed to make a pact they wouldn't breathe a word of what had occurred. It was the only way their dreadful crime would remain undiscovered. Lori then dropped Tony and Hope off at home and headed back to her own house with Melinda, whose excitement and giddiness was gone, now replaced by anxiety and apprehension. The book Cruel Sacrifice explains how Melinda set to work, disposing of everything she could from the interior of Lori's beige Chevy, with the two girls hosing out the trunk in an effort to eliminate any evidence of bloodstains. Upon closer inspection of the trunk, Lori made the grim discovery of a piece of Shanda's flesh, which had been dislodged during one of the vicious beatings. A detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask... Did you kill Renee? American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Back in Jeffersonville, at around 1 p.m., a frantic Steve Scherer called his ex-wife Jackie to say he couldn't find their daughter. A panicked Jackie raced over to Steve's house, where she immediately noticed Shanda's purse. Jackie knew that whatever had happened to her daughter, something was terribly wrong. Shanda never went anywhere without her purse. It was unheard of her to just leave the house without it. 45 minutes later, the distressed parents attended Clark County Sheriff's Office to file a missing persons report. Feeling helpless, Steve, Sharon, and Jackie returned home to make more phone calls. Desperate to see if anyone had spotted Shanda since the night before, the exhaustive list of calls included one to Amanda Heverin, who claimed to have no knowledge of Shanda's whereabouts. Jackie knew in the pit of her stomach that Amanda knew more than she was letting on, but of course, had nothing to prove it. Meanwhile, Lori had decided to call Hope to check in. The younger girl was highly agitated and upset, and pleaded for Lori and Melinda to come over. The older girls obliged, and on their way to the Rippies, stopped at the burn pile where they incinerated Shanda's clothes. 
When Lori and Melinda arrived at Hope's house, she was clearly distressed, but managed to calm down. Lori and Melinda stayed with Hope for a while, but left during the afternoon and headed back to Melinda's house in New Albany. Melinda managed to track Amanda down at a local mall in Clarksville, telling her over the phone that the group had killed Shanda. Amanda agreed to meet the girls later that afternoon, but didn't believe what Melinda had told her. Amanda knew Melinda could be vindictive and nasty, but surely it was all bravado. Lori and Melinda drove over to the mall where they picked up Amanda, before returning to Melinda's house. While Melinda sobbed, the girls recounted to Amanda what had happened. Amanda remained skeptical, so Lori decided there was only one thing for it, and showed her the inside of the trunk. Despite Lori and Melinda's best efforts to hose it out earlier that day, it was clear that someone had been inside and badly injured. Bloody handprints covered the inside of the lid of the trunk, which also contained hair, blood-stained socks, and a blood-stained bottle of window cleaner. Amanda couldn't believe what she was seeing. She was horrified and had the girls drive her home. Lori and Melinda returned to Melinda's house where Melinda's mood swung between being extremely talkative to being overcome with emotion and weeping inconsolably. Meanwhile, Hope had picked Tony up from work earlier that afternoon and the pair went to a local bowling alley. Hope was jumpy and tense, which led to her to confide in a male friend at the bowling alley about the horrifying events. In response, her friend recommended that Hope and Tony immediately seek legal advice. When Hope and Tony arrived at Hope's house later that afternoon, their garbled story tumbled out to Hope's disbelieving parents. A girl had been killed, and they saw it happen. The book Cruel Sacrifice details how the Rippies took Tony home, where she hysterically revealed to her parents what had occurred. Back in New Albany, Melinda's mother noticed her daughter was behaving strangely. Melinda didn't seem her usual self, almost as if she'd been spooked by something and she was insistent that Lori stay the night. Tony's confession to officers later that night provided the evidence investigators needed to arrest Lori and Melinda. Lori's car had by now been identified and traced to Melinda's house. When officers arrived at the Loveless home in the early hours of the following morning, they found the two girls asleep in bed together. In a search of Lori's car, officers found the tire iron, as well as blood and hair in the trunk. When Melinda and Lori were escorted to the police station, each claimed the other was responsible. The worst part of the investigation so far was still to come, with confirmation that the burnt corpse was that of Shanda. Indiana State Police delivered the gut-wrenching news at midnight to a disbelieving and devastated Steve, Sharon, and Jackie that their kind-hearted, outgoing, and good-natured daughter wouldn't be coming home. At the autopsy... The Kentucky chief medical examiner found Shanda's wrists and ankles had been bound. The burns to her upper body were so extensive that it was at first impossible to tell how old she was based on a visual estimate. Her legs had been slashed with a knife. She had been choked with a cord and beaten repeatedly on the head with a blood object, causing scalp lacerations. Apart from the blanket wrapped around her, she was clad in only her underwear. Before she died... She had been brutally anally penetrated with a foreign object, later determined to be the tire iron, which caused lacerations and hemorrhaging. Finally, she was doused with gasoline and burned beyond recognition, with the heat from the fire causing the skin on her legs to blister. The official cause of death was listed as burns and smoke inhalation based on the presence of soot in Shanda's airway, providing gruesome confirmation that she had been burned alive. Dental records confirmed Shanda as the victim, and the blood and hair found in the trunk of Lori's car were determined as Shanda's. As investigators proceeded with interviewing the four girls, it emerged that Hope and Tony found themselves as participating in something they could never have imagined facilitating. Lori claimed she had no recollection of how Shanda came to be on fire, but Melinda maintained that Lori was the one who supplied the matches, lighting one and then throwing it on Shanda's gasoline-soaked body. Despite Tony's confession... And the fact she hadn't appeared to participate in Shanda's torture and murder as fully as the other girls, Shanda's mother Jackie wasn't forgiving. As more details emerged, Tony's apparent continued failure to intervene over a period of hours made Shanda's death all the more heartbreaking. By the following Monday morning, news of the shocking murder dominated the local airwaves. Tragically, it wasn't until Jackie saw a news report the following day as she learned the sickening details of exactly how her youngest daughter had died. 
At the time, the only details made public were the identities of the victim, the alleged perpetrators, and the cause of death. Wouldn't be until the case went to court, starting with Melinda and Lori, that the gut-wrenching details be released. As officers continued interviewing family, friends and teachers of the four accused girls, they started to gain a full and horrifying picture of the forces that collided, which led to the brutal outcome for Shanda. Many of the young people who knew the girls corroborated the evidence provided by Hope and Tony, as well as Melinda and Lori's behavior in the months and weeks leading up to the murder. Numerous statements and interviews revealed that Melinda had made repeated threats in public to kill Shanda and confirmed Melinda's previous plans to hurt Amanda. Other teenagers told investigators that Lori had spoken about wanting to kill someone, including burning someone alive. Amanda Hevron had nothing to do with the deadly plot, which was driven by Melinda's jealousy and Lori, who was intelligent but homicidal. Amanda initially denied any romantic or sexual relationships existing between any of the girls and herself. But by now, police had access to the letters from Melinda, which had resulted in Amanda's father lodging his earlier complaint. In a letter from November, Melinda had written to Amanda, If you've noticed, all these uncalled-for fights have been because of Shanda. Yes, I'm hurt and pissed at you. I can't believe you. You better straighten your act up, Missy. I'm sick of hearing and seeing Shanda. You have not shown me no improvement yet. Shanda is not gone. You haven't got rid of her. It's your problem, not mine. I'm real mad at you. I feel like I need to cry. I want Shanda dead. On January 15th, over 300 mourners packed the chapel of Our Lady of Perpetual Help to farewell Shanda. The Indianapolis News reported that Shanda's family and hundreds of students from various schools she'd attended gathered for the highly emotional service. The officiating priest asked those present to imagine setting Shanda free like a butterfly. And a heartbroken Jackie thanked the community for their support. But everyone knew that in a way, the worst was yet to come. Part 4. Purgatorio By mid-March 1992, Prosecutors had obtained sufficient evidence to charge Hope and Tony with murder, criminal confinement, criminal deviate conduct, aggravated battery, arson, intimidation, and battery by means of a deadly weapon. Their trials were due to commence in September. Melinda and Lori were also charged with child molestation, and their trials were scheduled to begin in August. All four girls were charged as adults and kept apart until they faced court. When Lori was assessed by psychologists to determine whether she was competent to stand trial, it was concluded that her attempts to convince others she was experiencing symptoms of mental illness were simply an effort to support an insanity plea and avoid prison time. Under Indiana law, due to the aggravated nature of Shanda's murder, if Melinda and Lori pled not guilty but were convicted, they would face the death penalty. However, the same punishment wouldn't apply to Hope due to her age at the time Shanda was murdered. Shanda's mother, Jackie, attended every hearing for each of the four girls, telling the LA Times, I just want parents to start loving their children again and caring for them again. This is what I can do for Shanda now. Shanda keeps me strong. The judge granted a motion of change of venue, but the upcoming trials wouldn't be moved. Instead, the jury would consist of citizens from another county, all four alleged killers initially pleaded not guilty. Prosecutors determined that Tony bore the least amount of culpability compared to her cohorts. On April 22, 1992, she accepted a plea bargain on the conditions that she testify against her co-accused and plead guilty to one count of criminal confinement resulting in serious bodily injury. In return, the charges of murder, arson, and aggravated battery would be dropped. In July 1992, the prosecution filed their intention to seek the death penalty against Melinda and Lori, as well as charging the girls with conspiracy to commit murder. The list of charges against the two other girls was growing. The prosecution was confident the death penalty would become a reality should Melinda and Lori proceed to trial instead of accepting a plea bargain. On September 21, 1992, Melinda and Lori agreed to plea bargains for charges of murder, arson, and criminal confinement resulting in serious bodily injury. In return, prosecutors would take the death penalty off the table, and the remaining charges would be dropped, 
In early October, the pleas were formally accepted. Two months later, Lyndon Laurie's sentencing hearings commenced. The public heard the grisly details of Shanda's last hours for the first time. But there was no evidence as to who was responsible for sodomizing Shanda with the tire iron. Both Melinda and Lori claiming ignorance. Lori couldn't explain how Shanda sustained her extensive head injuries or who struck the match that started the fire. Melinda and Lori continued to blame each other for being the mastermind behind the murder. The book Little Lost Angel explains how Melinda admitted to killing Shanda, but the defense claimed Melinda simply followed Lori. At Melinda's sentencing hearing, her sisters and cousins testified about mitigating factors saying that her father Larry forced them all as young girls to have sex with him, and that he may have also abused Melinda. Psychologists testified that Melinda had a submissive personality, which caused her to fall under the influence of Lori's domineering personality, who they described as a sociopath. Melinda was also reported to be diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and PTSD. The Chicago Tribune reported that Lori too blamed her involvement of her abusive family background. The court heard that in addition to borderline personality disorder, Lori had been diagnosed with depression and substance abuse. A psychologist's report stated that Lori's history of abuse made her incapable of feeling and demonstrating empathy, as well as an inability to understand right from wrong. The court heard that before the murder, Lori had spoken about how fun it would be to kill someone and burn them alive for publicity. Other friends and acquaintances also testified that on occasion they'd seen Lori cut her own wrist and drink her blood. Before the sentences were handed down on January 4, 1993, Shanda's mother Jackie delivered an emotionally charged victim impact statement. She told the court, I don't think there's anything worse than burying your own child. Burying your own daughter is not a natural thing to go through. I used to have a reason to come home every night from work. Now there's no one to kiss goodnight. She was so mutilated you couldn't tell she was a human being. She had no face. We couldn't put clothes on her. So we covered her with a blanket of roses. She would have wanted something pretty. Shanda was so pretty. Speaking to Melinda, Jackie said, I want you to think of the person you love the most, and I want you to imagine that person being burned and mutilated. Maybe then you could feel a small portion of the pain our family feels. May you rot in hell. The judge told Melinda, you still have the power to turn yourself around and do something good and useful with your life. Shanda Sherrick does not. I hope you take advantage of that opportunity. Melinda and Lori both received the maximum prison sentence of 60 years. Outside court following the sentencing, Shanda's father Steve told the Courier-Journal, I feel like I can breathe again. I feel no sympathy for the families of those girls. They can still visit their child in jail. We'll never see Shanda again. That same month, Tony Lawrence was also sentenced to a maximum of 20 years in prison. Hope Rippey initially pled not guilty to murder, child molestation, conspiracy, assault, arson, and criminal confinement. Her trial was rescheduled from September 1992 to March 1993, but in April, she changed her mind and signed a plea agreement, pleading guilty to murder, arson, and criminal confinement. At Hope's sentencing in June, the defense argued that she didn't try to prevent the assault on Shanda due to peer pressure and her fear of Melinda and Lori. Her attorney also cited Melinda and Lori's statement that Hope didn't participate in beating Shanda, but the judge didn't buy it, saying, She lacked mercy and showed no courage or tenderness. Her attitude was criminal. In June 1993, Hope received a 60-year sentence with 10 years suspended and another 10 years of probation. The allegations made against 46-year-old Larry Loveless during Melinda's sentencing hearing resulted in Larry's arrest in January 1993 on multiple counts of rape, sodomy, and sexual battery. The LA Times reported that the allegations included the claim that Larry had once chained his daughters together and sexually abused them. On another occasion, he was said to have sexually violated one of his nieces with a loaded pistol. Melinda stated she couldn't recall ever being molested by her father. In the end, Larry pleaded not guilty to one count of sexual battery, which was the only charge not thrown out under the Indiana Statute of Limitations. He was released from jail in June 1995 after completing his sentence of time served while awaiting court. In November 1998, Tony Lawrence requested early release. This was denied, however, two years later, 
the 24-year-old was released on parole. Having served nine years of her original 20-year sentence, she remained on parole until December 2002. In November 2004, an appeal lodged by Hope Rippey was successful, and her sentence was reduced to 35 years. In April 2006, the 29-year-old was released on five-year supervised parole. Sadly, the tragedy of Shanda's murder continued to reverberate throughout her family. Jackie was unable to work, and at one stage, attempted to take her own life. Despite these challenges, she threw herself into victim advocacy, working for the Floyd County Prosecutor's Office. But Shanda's father, Steve, became more and more dependent on alcohol to help him cope with the crushing pain of losing his only daughter. In May 2005, at the age of 52, Steve died of cancer and alcohol-related complications. He was buried at Big Spring Cemetery in Kentucky, where his daughter was laid to rest. In early January 2008, Melinda Lovelace's defense team requested that her sentence be reduced and her guilty plea be overturned. Her attorney argued that at the time Melinda was sentenced, her age and the fact that she felt intimidated by the prospect of the death penalty meant she couldn't be held to her plea. The News and Tribune reported that Shanda's mother, Jackie, told WLKY-TV that her only wish was for all of the convicted killers to do their full time in jail, saying, Every single one except Lori Tackett has done everything they can at every turn to get out. To me, it's more than a slap in the face. It's just like killing Shanda all over again. Thankfully for Shanda's family, Melinda's request was rejected. Her guilty plea was maintained, and she wouldn't be eligible for parole until 2023. This didn't deter Melinda from appealing to the Indiana Court of Appeals, but on November 14, 2008, her request was denied. During her sentence, Melinda became involved in a program training assistance dogs for people with disabilities. With a dog being donated by the least likely person, Jackie took the courageous step of donating for Melinda to train a dog in honor of Shanda. When Jackie spoke about her decision, she said, It's my choice to make. She's my child. If you don't let good things come from bad things, nothing gets better. And I know what my child would want. My child would want this. Five years later, in January 2018, 43-year-old Lori Tackett was released from prison on parole. On September 5, 2019, Melinda Lovelace, also 43 years old, was also granted parole. Shanda's mother, Jackie, continues to talk to her daughter every day. Talking to the Indianapolis Star about the killers, she said, It is not up to me to forgive those girls for what they did. It's up to God. Those girls have sorrow, hate, and heartache every day of their lives. They have to live with what they did to Shanda. They close their eyes and relive it. My daughter is in heaven. She can't hurt anymore. Listener, the shocking answers to the many questions about how such a violent and abhorred act could have occurred repulsed and outraged not only the surrounding communities of southern Indiana and northern Kentucky, but the nation. We know by now that Jackie didn't get her wish for her daughter's killers to serve out their full sentences. All four women are now free. But it's clear that Shanda's legacy lives on in her mother's strength and resilience. I think that wraps things up. Thank you for listening, and keep the fire burning.